Thanks, Eli. Let's just pray as we open up God's word. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, may we come to it knowing that you are a great God, that your name is great, that what you have provided for us in your son Jesus is great. Uh, May your spirit give us understanding where we lack it. May your spirit bring clarity where there's any confusion. And Lord, most of all, uh, may Jesus be made clear. We ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, Humanity has always sought to accomplish something. Uh, We design, we build, uh, we explore, we create, we use our hands, we use our minds. Sometimes we use both of those things together. And some of the greatest things that have been accomplished for humanity are sometimes building project related. Whether it's the Great Wall of China, the pyramids of Egypt, whether it's uh, the Taj Mahal or whether it's City Reach Marion. These monuments to personal accomplishment, personal hard work, ingenuity, all those things, the things that people can achieve when they set their minds to it can sometimes put us in awe of what we're capable of. I'm not capable of such things. I don't have an approach of, you know, measure twice, cut once. It's like, why bother cutting at all? It's just keep putting things together until they stop fitting and then you're done. Whatever it looks like, it looks like. Don't ask me to build anything for you, obviously. Uh, there's, there's a sense in which, though, humanity can accomplish great things. But what they're accomplishing them for is not always great in and of itself. We've had a couple of building projects already as we've looked through the book of Genesis. Uh, We had this great building project of the ark that was a picture of salvation and what God had instructed Noah to build. But now we have another building project. We have this tower of Babel. As we consider this account today, we're not so much... Ironically, we're not looking at the tower. Uh, That was exactly the point it was built for, was that people would notice it and acknowledge it and talk about it. But we're not focusing on the tower. We're focusing on uh, this, the God who comes down. The great name of the God who comes down and interacts with the sinful and rebellious people. Uh, This passage teaches us about the dangers of building ourselves up, but also of the God who comes down. And it also teaches us that our greatest accomplishments accomplishments in this life mean absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing, if they're done for our name's sake. Only God's name is worthy of praise and honour. I want to mention briefly a bit of the context. We didn't get Eli to read chapter 10. I'm sure he would have loved to. Um, but for the sake of time, we didn't read chapter 10 this morning. We still want to think about it. If you've got it there in front of you, just have a glance at it. At first, look, it just looks like a heap of names. Just a heap of names. Just another list of names. We've already had a couple of these in Genesis. But there's some things worth considering every time we see a list of names in the Bible. Our automatic thing is, I'll just breeze through this, I'll skip this in my daily reading. But there's always a point to something that's recorded for us in Scripture, especially genealogies. And this one in particular can reveal a couple of things to us. So just a couple of points about chapter 10. 
Remember back when we looked at Genesis 3.15, when God made the promise to Eve and there was going to be this, this offspring from the woman that would come and there would be this enmity between the woman and the offspring of the serpent and there would be this battle that would go on through human history. What we get from then on, especially in Genesis, but all the way through the rest of the Bible, is a way to read genealogies. Offspring. Who's coming from whom? Who begets whom? There's a tracing of lineage. There's a tracing of we're looking for someone. We're looking for this promised deliverer. It narrows into nations, family groups, clans, individuals. Who are we looking for? We're looking for this offspring of the woman. It's always good to keep that in mind when we read genealogies. Uh, we've, we've had a bit of a thread through in the sense of this offspring of the woman that's continuing. We've had Seth. We've had Shem. And now we're getting some of uh, Shem's lineage here and we're about to get to the first patriarch, Abram or Abraham. It's worth also considering that chapter 10 just doesn't stand on its own and then rudely interrupt this story that we want to look at in the Tower of Babel. No, actually, the Tower of Babel is interrupting a genealogy. It's interrupting Shem's line, Shem's family. The focus is on him. We've got the table of nations through chapter 10. There's about 70 nations that are being made up here. And these are the nations that are going to surround Israel, the ones that are going to be around God's people, the ones that are going to influence them for the rest of their history. So they're important to the rest of how we read scripture from that point of view too. We also get, we also get the beginning of Babel. Uh, in verses 8 to 10 of Genesis 10, we get this man named Nimrod. And he has this massive kingdom, it tells us. He was a mighty man, a mighty hunter, before the law. That doesn't mean he was a good shooter who went out with hit and ruse and all those sorts of things. But he was a mighty and powerful man. He set up kingdoms and the start of his kingdom, the centre of his kingdom was Babel, which would become Babylon. Now Nimrod, although it lists him as a mighty man, repeats it. It's like, this is a mighty man before the Lord. He was a mighty man in the Lord's sight. Doesn't necessarily mean he was a mighty man with God's stamp of approval. Because we see from his very name which means, Nimrod means, we will rebel. Let us revolt. So we see from his very name that this is not uh, God's approved way of doing things. This is not God's approved leader. But he is probably our first tyrant kingdom uh, in human history. So there's a bit of context there. So by the time we get to the start of chapter 11, as we start thinking about our main passage that was read for us, we see, firstly, this trap of building ourselves up. The whole earth has one language, using the same words, but the main thing we, we see in this opening chapter, sorry, these opening verses, is that they've directly disobeyed God. God's command to them from Genesis, the very beginning, to Adam and Eve, and then to Noah again, go into the world, fill it, multiply. They, they say instead, no, let's, uh, let's settle here. Let's make a name for ourselves here. They're directly disobeying God's command. 
Any uh, person who's observed children know they're pretty good at this. They can maintain eye contact with you while doing the exact thing you've told them not to do. It's a skill that some children have. Uh, I can point the finger at my own children, but I'm still a child as well and realise that I still do this. A couple of weeks ago, uh, a wedding rehearsal for my sister and my mother observed some socks that I was wearing. I know she doesn't have a problem with the socks, she gave them to me, but she said, I hope you don't wear those to your sister's wedding. No one wants to see those. I knew what pair of socks I was going to be wearing to my sister's wedding from that moment forward. We do this, don't we? When someone gives us direct instruction, we like to prove our autonomy. We like to prove, ah, no, I'm my own person. I'm going to figure this out for myself. I'm going to do it my own way. The reasons they give for not following God's command, the reason they give for building this tower that will reach to the heavens is that they want to make a name for themselves. And very ironically, they want to avoid being dispersed over the whole earth. That's the reasons they give. We're going to build this tower to make a name for ourselves so we don't get spread out over the whole earth. bit ironic, isn't it? And this culture of Babel, or Babylon as it will become, has a couple of characteristics which I think are the same in most cultures throughout all of human history and our culture today. Think of what some of their underlying feelings and characteristics of how they're acting are and see if it resonates with us. They desire fame. They desire fame. They have the sense of security for them lies in a solid reputation, a powerful reputation. They desire this. The other thing that is underlying their culture is this insecurity. They have this fear of being separated from one another and disconnected. And when you have a culture built around these two things, a desire for fame and self-advancement, usually and insecurity, you usually end up with an expression, great expressions of pride, great expressions of building yourself up. Pride is motivated by ambition and fear. Very few of us actually want to be anonymous. Even those of us who are happy to remain on the sidelines are quite happy to remain on the sidelines so long as everyone knows we're remaining on the sidelines. We don't actually want to be unnoticed. We are hurt when people don't notice us, when people don't speak to us, when we don't have their approval of something we do. And we therefore fear disconnection from any community or those around us that, that don't affirm our chosen identity. And we fall into this trap. We try and build ourselves up. One danger from this trap of building ourselves up is that we might actually achieve what we set out to do. We might actually get it done. We might actually finish our tower. But when we do, we find at the end we're just as empty as when we begun. So many place so much effort into uh, getting that job, that career, that lifestyle, having uh, that car, living in that suburb, sending kids to that school, 
having this much in the bank account. And we can actually accomplish some or all of those things. And when we do, we realise there's nothing. It's still empty. Or our heart actually now desires more or something else. The other danger, of course, of trying to build ourselves up is that we'll be caught out by our own inability to finish what we start or our own lack of being able to accomplish anything of eternal value. The tower we set out to build is left half done. Like all the half done projects around the house and in the shed and in life in general. I have dozens of books lying around our house with bookmarks at certain points and each of those books is a testament to my ability to not complete certain things in my life. The pile of washing on the couch is also a testament to my ability to not complete certain things in my life. Each of us, each of us have something incomplete in our lives. And the more things we have in our lives that are incomplete, the busier we appear to be. And usually associated with that, the bigger name we're trying to make for ourselves. The busier we are, the more we're relying on our own strength, the more we're trying to get by and have an identity of, I'm busy, I'm successful, I'm forging away. The half-built Tower of Babel, because this tower does not get completed, is a monument to humanity's overestimation of what we're capable of. We not only, <laughs> there's so many things we cannot finish in our own lives, but we cannot reach heaven. And this also tests me to what we do when we reject God's command and God's will. We will never achieve completeness and fulfillment in this life. We'll never achieve peace in this life. It's a lesson for us here. Be careful what you commit to do. Also be careful what you do not commit to do because that would be just as dangerous and just as self-serving to say, well, I won't do anything then. I won't set any grand plans and seek God to help me along the path and that that's, can be just as self-serving and self-protective. But be careful of what you commit to do. What are your motivations for committing to it? God wants you and even commands you to use your gifts and your ability for his glory, for the building up of, of his kingdom, of his church, if you're a believer. But is what you're seeking to do, can you do that? as unto the Lord. Will it be completed? Can you see it through? Are you doing it for God or yourself? Our attitude to what we are doing, whatever it is, whatever that is, whether it's study, whether it's work, whether it's being at home, whether it's interaction with uh, friends, Whatever we are seeking to do, the focus should never be what can I get out of it. But whether or not we can bring God glory through it. 
As I mentioned earlier as well, there's this great irony in this passage where the very thing the people of the plains of Shinar building this tower set out to do, their very aim was not to be dispersed over the whole earth. The very thing you sometimes most fear, you end up accomplishing by your very actions trying to avoid it. There's a searching question for us in that this morning. What does my insecurity and pride lead me to do that is against God? What does my insecurity and pride lead me to do that is against God? Fear and insecurity so often make us turn from the very thing and the very one who can most help us or heal us. Pride often makes us run towards our own solutions rather than relying on what God has offered. There's so much in my own life where I can look at it and go, I've tried to avoid that and I've accomplished it. I've accomplished it. Tried to avoid the very thing I've accomplished. All because of my fear and my pride. My reliance on my own strength and my pride in saying I don't need God. And when you run from God, you'll run to his judgment. Because that is what happens here. Because not only should we avoid this trap of building ourselves up, we must acknowledge there is a God who comes down. And God does that. Verse 5 tells us the Lord came down to see the city. God's always observing the actions of mankind. He's far from being distant and, and uninvolved or uninterested in what's going on in, in our lives, in humanity, in the world. He takes notice. He's watching. He's seeing. And he's very willing to intervene, to step into human history, to enact his, his sovereignty, to enact his plan. God's watching these people at Babel, their attempts to build up to him, to reach the heavens. Of course, satirically, he has to come down to even see what they're doing. There's no way they'll ever reach him. This text tells us that when it says that God came down and says in verse 6 about their one people, they have one language, this is only the beginning of what they'll do and nothing that they propose will now be impossible for them. When God speaks of the unity of these people, leading them to accomplish the impossible, it's not a compliment. It's not a compliment. He's looking at them, he's observing what they're doing, and he's seeing the end result of it. Rebellion against God is not a good unity. We should not blindly seek unity for unity's sake. There has to be a common goal sometimes and a common vision. But if there's anything other than God, that, that, that that's the common vision, that's the common goal, that's the common call to unity, if it's not 
God or related to seeking his will and kingdom, be careful because there is such a thing as false unity. People can be completely united and completely at peace with one another around a common goal that is in direct rebellion against God. It's what Derek Kidner commenting on this passage calls a collective apostasy, a collective opposition against God. That's not a good unity. And we see here in Babel that Babel is a precursor for all the nations, all the systems, all the governments, all the empires and all the individuals that will raise themselves up in pride against God. This spirit of Babel, the spirit of Babylon, as it will become through the rest of scripture, is one of pride and rebellion against God. Throughout all of human history, we see the spirit of Babylon rising and falling and rising again. It's the offspring of the serpent that's seeking to destroy the offspring of the woman. We see that all the way through, and Revelation has this climax between the two. It's a spirit that seeks to destroy what is righteous and good. It is anti-God. It is anti-Christ. It finds pleasure in immorality. It worships false gods and calls others to worship false gods. It rests in personal accomplishment. That is the spirit of Babylon. And its foundation is in love of self and promotion of evil. That is what this spirit is. And it's the spirit of every human heart outside of God's grace. None of us love God as we should. There are none righteous, no, not one. There are none that seek good, we're told. Our hearts are desperately wicked. And the same attitude that lives in the people of Babel, we look at it and go, oh, thank goodness we're not like that. Oh, but we are. Our towers just look a bit different. But the spirit's still there, the spirit of self-reliance on what we can do. The pride is still there. The fear is still there. Before long on that path where we embrace this spirit, we're finding we actually we don't need God to be good. I had this very conversation with someone this week in the op shop. We actually don't need God to be good. We are intrinsically good, except for that person over there who's chosen to be not as good as me. We take pride in who we are. Rather than humbling ourselves under the hand of God and seeing we're in desperate need of salvation from ourselves. God here directly intervenes into this unity that humanity has because it's, it's not a wholesome unity. There's nothing good about it. It's prideful rebellion. It's sin. And his way of addressing this collective apostasy, this opposition against him, is to disperse the people by confusing their language, to spread them out, that they can no longer work so closely together to accomplish what their fear and pride sets out to accomplish. We look at it and say, well, that's, it's God's punishment. There is a sense of this punishment here, it's punitive. 
They haven't obeyed, God punishes. People are united, God disperses. But it's also God preventing. I think it's preventative justice as well. If these people had stayed in Babel and got and done everything that they wanted to do, it would not have been a utopia. It would not have been heaven on earth. It wouldn't have been. Most likely it would have been hell on earth. Because that's what anything that rejects the presence of God is like. To reject God's presence is to receive and accept and desire hell. To rebel against God is to choose hell. To unite with others who are rebelling against God does not lead to true harmony, equality and peace. It leads to devastation, it leads to ruin, it leads to death. And God will judge sin and he will place limits on mankind's sin. Just as we saw in Genesis 3, God placed limits on the garden. Not only did he expel Adam and Eve from the garden, which was a judgment in itself, that was part of the reasoning for that was that so they would not access the tree of life and live forever as sinners in a cursed world. He intervenes here and he intervenes in our world. Imagine a world where despots and tyrants could live forever. Imagine a world where suffering never ended. Because that's often an argument that comes against God and people use it. And God intervenes here. He stops something here. Why doesn't he intervene elsewhere? Why hasn't he come into my life here or there? Why doesn't he intervene in that situation in the world over there? Well, he has. Imagine a world where suffering never ended. Imagine a world where pain never stopped, where evil had free course, where evil people could live forever. And you spent your eternal existence building monuments to your own failure. Sounds like hell, doesn't it? And God does not desire that for you. He doesn't desire it for anybody. He will come down and act, and he has. God disperses humanity over the whole earth. And what remains is babble, confusion. No one understands each other. There's no, now no common unity. And human history, mostly since then, has remained unchanged. I'll say mostly for a reason or two in a minute. But what, what does this story tell us? What does this account tell us? Men and humanity have always worked at reaching heaven on our own terms. Trying to build ourselves up. We're always trying to do that. But God, in seeking to save humanity, does not call anybody to build themselves up to him. He comes down. He comes down to save. Humanity also cannot reach heaven 
of works, whatever good things we can do will not get us to heaven. We can never get there. All of our towers will remain incomplete. Nothing we build in this life will last unless it's built on Jesus. We also take great hope in that because Jesus did complete the work he was sent to do. He from the cross said it is finished. There's nothing left to accomplish. There's nothing left to build on. He alone has done enough. We learn from this story as well, of course, that God will always humble the proud. God will always humble the proud and those who lift themselves up against him will always be lowered. He has no other option. He has to. He must humble the proud because he himself is holy and perfect and good. But also as we're going to see and God willing we'll pick up the rest of the story of Genesis as we go forward into the rest of the year. As we'll see in chapter 12 and onwards not only does God humble the proud he also lifts up the lowly. He selects the small. He selects the weak. He selects the unnoticed. He selects the ones from nowhere to become his people. Abraham does not strike us as a Nimrod. He's not. He's not someone that we would go out and pick from a lineup and say, that's who I want to be the father of nations, the father of faith. But God chooses Abraham. He chooses Israel. He chooses the weak. He chooses the insignificant. And he makes a covenant with them. Not with the strong, not with the mighty, but with the small and the weak, the overlooked, the humble. We also learn that God provides a solution for our fears, our anxieties. The people of Babel here were exposed as insecure and fearful because they refused to obey God or trust in his promises. But God provides for us. He comes down. We see the way God comes down here. But of course, he's come down in a far more mighty way in his son. And he comes down into our mess, into our half-built lives. Comes down into our insecurity. He comes into our pride and our fears. He steps into this world. Steps into our very flesh. Incarnates himself through his son in this world and walks in our shoes. But without sin. Because of that, because Jesus has come down instead of, instead of him hanging on, as Philippians tells us, instead of him holding on as he could have to the glories of heaven, he put those aside and came down. Instead of making himself notorious, instead of making himself powerful, instead of setting up a kingdom here on earth for his own namesake, he did the will of his father and became a servant. And our fears, our insecurity, our pride should fall away when we see the very king of heaven who's willing to come down and die for us.
we see the power and greatness of our God as well. We see it because he's stepped into human history. He did it at Babel. He's done it with his son. He's also done it by sending his spirit. Prophets like Zephaniah longed for the day when Babel would be reversed. When people would have a unity, but the right kind of unity. That they would be united in pure speech, calling on the name of the Lord. That they would serve him as one. He goes on to say in another part of that passage that they would also be a humble and lowly people that seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Humble and lowly, gentle and lowly, a people whose saviour is gentle and lowly. This, of course, happened. This prophecy of Zephaniah happened. The great reversal of Babel happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit came down and the great Babel reversal, if you want to call it that, took place. Where what was dark, light shone. Where it was helpless and hopeless, there was hope. Where there was confusion, there was clarity. Where there were many languages, only one message was heard, the message of Jesus. Proclaimed boldly by lowly people. Pentecost shows, Pentecost shows us, as today is also Pentecost Sunday, Pentecost shows us that God intervenes by his power and by his spirit to reveal the truth of his son to every person, every tribe, every language, every culture, every nation. God can do his work without barriers. His power can remove those barriers and we believe in that and that's why we send people out even though they speak the same language in Mount Barker. We send people out because God is powerful and he can save all. Pentecost also teaches us about true community. Not false community, but a unity and true community of believers in Jesus, united in the truth and the way and life. What else does this account show us? If anything else, the account of Babel shows us that when men take counsel together, they seek to build themselves up and end in ruin. But notice God takes counsel with himself in this passage. And when God takes counsel with himself, humanity is saved from itself. And there's true community. And God comes down to rescue and restore. And we as a church at City Reach Marion, we do not rest in our own name We do not rest in the name of our network. We do not rest in the freedom of our own country at this time to still proclaim from from this book. 
We don't rest in the name of Australia. We don't rest in our language. We don't rest in our culture. We don't rest in any one individual. We look to a great God who humbles himself to come down and save and provides us the power we need to complete what he has commanded us to do, to go in his power and in his spirit, to go into the whole world and make his name known. I trust we would build our lives and this church on the name of Jesus and God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great name. There is no other name that we would have refuge in. There's no other name that we can seek to build our lives on. Lord, thank you for the wonder of your name and the name of Jesus that is above every other name. May we found in our own hearts and lives that we would bow our knee to him and call upon him. Thank you that you have provided all we have needed. Thank you that you have come down to us. We don't have to work our way to you. That you have come to us in great love and grace and made salvation possible. And we praise you for that. Lord, we ask for that power of the Holy Spirit that indwells every single believer and every single person that follows Jesus. That power would overflow. There would be a breaking out. There would be a great renewal because our hearts trust in no other name. Lord, we pray that for here at Mary. We pray that for Grace Hills in Mount But we pray that for us as individuals, that our hearts will be full and overflowing of your spirit so that Jesus would be made known. And it's his, his mighty name we ask this. Amen. We're just